welcome to Blind Guys Chat, where this guy, Oren O'Neill, hello, and this guy, Jan Bloom, hello, and this guy, Stuart Lawler, hello, talk about the A to Z of life. Hello and you are very welcome into episode number 68 of Blind Guys Chat. Hey, there's something really wrong here. I'm on my own. I'm not joking. We know, we know we joke about these things on the show every so often, but I'm not joking. I'm on my own in the Blind Guys Chat office. It's very dark in here. Um, uh, Oren and Jan are not available this week. Claude is not available this week. So they handed me the podcast. I feel a bit like someone who's been asked to babysit several years after they've had their own child. And you sort of say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I know what it's like. And then you're handed the child and you actually don't really know what to do. So I'm hoping that, you know, during the show today, as you listen in, it all goes okay. Anyway, you are very welcome in. Very strange uh, feeling being here this week. Oren and Jan, unavailable. They will be back in two weeks' time. I won't be here in two weeks' time, by the way. Lots of musical chairs uh, these days on Black Guys Chat. And, uh, but anyway, you are very welcome in. We have a very special show for you, and I'll tell you about that in just a second. But blindguyschat at gmail.com is that all-important email address. You know we love getting, and, and it's really funny, before we start each show, and Cloda's chatting to us off air before we go live. And we always say, have we got emails, Cloda? And I've noticed in the last sort of six shows we've done, um, there's been more emails than poor Cloda has had time to read. So thank you to everybody who, who takes the time to say hello, whether you're, whether you're writing to, to agree or indeed disagree with something we've said. That's quite okay. We really appreciate the fact that you get in touch and say hello and... Uh, yeah, remind me of all the actions that I need to do. So uh, thank you to everybody. There are more actions on my list, I know. Someone said um, <coughs> ChatGPT. I was talking to someone about ChatGPT the other day, and they said, I heard you're doing a demo of that on the podcast. It's coming up. It's coming up, guys. Not today, though, because ChatGPT is far away from our minds today. Do you know what is on our minds today? The coronation of King Charles, which is taking place on the 6th of May. Uh, coincidentally enough, the same day that my nephew is making his communion down in Kildare. So that's where I'll be that day. But do you know something? The coronation, I think it's a it's a once in a lifetime event, isn't it? I mean, I, very, very few people have been, uh, were around for the coronation of uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, in 1952. 1952, as they say down in Kildare. Um, but this uh, on the 6th of, of May, King Charles' uh, coronation and Queen Camilla, the Queen Consort as she is now, she will be Queen Camilla uh, n- n- um, next week, uh, that ceremony is taking place in Westminster. And our wonderful friend, and, and, and we don't use that term lightly, by the way, our wonderful friend Veronica Hicks has put together a whole series of uh, audio recordings that she has entitled Countdown to the Coronation. And she's put them up on a, on a YouTube channel, which I will include, by the way, on the show notes for this episode. So if you're looking at the show notes, which are normally written by Mr. Oren O'Neill, who's a, who's a bit of a master at this stuff, by the way. Um, anyway, 
if you're looking at the show notes this week, there'll be a different style, no doubt. But the uh, the link to Veronica Hicks's wonderful YouTube page will be there. And the reason I've put them up is because I, I have a feeling Veronica's going to add to this between the time we are recording and uh, the time that the coronation happens. So it would be worth visiting that link again, by the way, when you're listening to this podcast. Anyway, what we've done on this very special show, because the guys aren't here and because God love you, you don't want to hear me going on for an hour and a bit talking about nothing although i should talk about the weather hey the weather's great right it's really nice here in dublin today i don't know what else to say about it i'd love to know what the weather's like in the netherlands where mr jan bloom is um maybe we should have rang him up or something anyway um so veronica hicks has put together this youtube channel i think she's done seven uh little pieces about different aspects of the coronation. So she starts off talking about the royal invitations. For those of you who were lucky enough to get an invite, by the way, I didn't get one. Um, she talks about the invitation and, and the design, etc., etc. And then she talks about the carriages and she talks about the regalia. She talks about the food. What, what are these guys going to be eating at the coronation? And, and by the way, you might be very surprised when you hear what they're going to be eating. Anyway, she does all that. She's put them together into little clips that she's put on YouTube. Each one lasts about between 10 and 15 minutes. And they're just brilliant. And I was listening to, to them last week. And I was thinking to myself that maybe two, three, well, I don't know, when I, whenever I started watching The Crown, so let's say four or five years ago, if the coronation had been happening, I would have had zero interest. I wouldn't have even bothered with it, to be quite honest. And now I'm very invested in it. And I'm very interested in it. And I had a conversation. This is really interesting. I had a conversation with a work colleague a couple of months ago who is in the UK. And I was saying to him, are you a royalist? And he said, no, no, not at all. And we started talking about um, about The Crown on Netflix. He said, I don't watch it. And I said, God, I really like the royal family after watching The Crown. Um, anyway, my point, I suppose, is that I wouldn't have been any way interested only for the crown and the person who brought the crown to life for me, of course, was Veronica Hicks and, I think, who brought it to life for so many other blind and visually impaired viewers. And Veronica has taken the time as a little personal project, by the way, this is just something she's doing herself, to put together these uh, audio um, audio descriptions, I suppose, of different aspects of the coronation. So what we've done on this show, what we're about to do, and what you're about to hear for an hour and five minutes, by the way, is the entire um, the entire montage uh, to date, by the way, and that's why I said to you, check out the YouTube channel when you hear this show, because I suspect there may be more up there. The entire montage today, as of today's date recording, which is May Day, by the way, as I sit here on the 1st of May, working away in the Blind Guys chat office, we're going to put up the, we're going to play you the entire montage. And it's really just let you lose yourself in this for an hour and five minutes, right? Sit back, lose yourself in this, because you really will get a, a great sense of of the of the entire spectacle, if I if I if I may use that word, spectacle that's going to be the coronation of King Charles and Queen Consort Camilla, brought to us by the outstanding, the wonderful, the amazing Veronica Hicks. And I have nothing else to say right now, only to hand you over to the lady of the moment. Enjoy. Countdown to the coronation. This is Veronica Hicks bringing you details of the upcoming coronation to get you up to speed with the arrangements before the great day. 
For most of us, this is the first coronation we will have witnessed, certainly if you're under 70 years of age. I do know that in 1953, only a tiny percentage of people had access to a television, and it would have been a small black-and-white one. We're told that friends and neighbours gathered around these little TVs in people's homes, for many the first time that they'd ever seen the flickering image on a screen. Well, now everything is available on every type of screen. But unless you're actually in the Abbey, facing the altar, you're just as dependent on a screen near you or what a TV presenter is telling you. And even if you're already setting up camp along the Mall or outside Westminster Abbey to be part of the great day, there's a lot of information that you might miss with three weeks to go. So, with three weeks to go, here's the first of a series of described introductions to the coronation to prepare you for what is to come. I begin with the invitation, which has been sent out to 2,000 guests. They are a mix of what used to be called the great and the good, members of the royal family, and that includes royal cousins from here and from abroad, important politicians, and other people who represent offices of state within the UK and elsewhere. 850 valued members of society, community volunteers who've been awarded a British Empire Medal, and key workers, particularly those identified as heroes of the pandemic. So let's take a look at this cheerful and welcoming design by Andrew Jameson, a heraldic artist and manuscript illuminator whose work is inspired by the themes of Arthurian legend. Mr. Jameson is a brother of the Art Workers Guild, of which the King is an honorary member. The original artwork for the invitation was hand-painted in watercolour and gouache. The design has been reproduced and printed on recycled card with gold foil detailing. This very jolly design puts us in mind of the special invitation that was designed for young Prince Charles, who was four at the time of his mother's coronation. That invitation was adorned with marching trumpeters and drummers in bearskin hats, chests puffed out, a seated lion and a unicorn looking very amiably at each other against a backdrop of green foliage and flowers, and the Union Jack draped over a classical column and a tall oak tree. The 2023 invitation has a similar feel. It's about five and a half inches long and four inches wide. Around its edges, there's a broad border about an inch and a half in width, bursting with colour and delicate detail. The design that goes all the way around the border is of a wildflower meadow, featuring lily of the valley, cornflowers, wild strawberries, dog roses, pansies, daffodils, a shamrock, a thistle, snowdrops, bluebells, and a sprig of rosemary, which is a symbol of remembrance. Flowers appear in groupings of three, signifying the king becoming the third monarch of his name. Along with the flora, the fauna includes a bee, a butterfly, a ladybird, a wren, and a robin. And if you look closely in amongst the flowers, you can spot a unicorn, a lion, and a boar skulking in the undergrowth. Which leads us to the two coats of arms adorning the top left and right-hand side of the invitation. The one on the left is King Charles's own with the red and gold Tudor crown in the centre above the crowned line on the left and the unicorn symbolising Scotland on the right, both creatures on their hind legs facing inwards on either side of the royal shield, their claws and hoofs holding on to a blue buckled garter that's draped around the shield and embossed in gold with the words Oni soit qui mal y pense, 
evil to him who evil thinks, the motto of the Order of the Garter. Beneath the shield, a rippling banner with more gold lettering spells out Dieu et mon droit, God and my right, which is the motto of the British monarch. The shield in the centre is quartered. In the first and fourth quarter, the seated lion symbols of the United Kingdom, England and Wales. In the second, the rampant lion of Scotland. And in the fourth, the harp of Ireland. The coat of arms on the right-hand side of the invitation is that of Queen Camilla, combining features of her husband's coat of arms, the Battenberg-Windsors, and that of the Shand family. So, you have the same Tudor crown with semi-precious stones encrusted into its base, the lion on the left-hand side of the shield, but on the right, he's faced by a rather ferocious-looking Asia blue boar, holding on to the same blue-buckled garter embossed with the words Oniswaki Malipans, and that is an indication that Queen Camilla is also a member of the Order of the Garter. The left-hand side of the central shield again features the lion symbols of England and Wales, the rampant lion of Scotland, and the harp of Ireland. The right-hand side displays a white boar's head, beneath two red stars or mullets flanking the nobbly cross of Camilla's father, Bruce Shand. Dominating the centre of the bottom of the invitation, there's a green male head, otherwise known as the Green Man, an ancient figure from British folklore, symbolic of spring and rebirth, to celebrate this new reign. The thinking is that the Green Man alerts us to King Charles's indefatigable and progressive green credentials, reflecting his many years of environmental campaigning. The artwork depicts this folkloric head crowned in natural foliage formed of leaves of oak, ivy and hawthorn. With the emblematic flowers of the United Kingdom, the daffodil, the rose, the shamrock and the thistle. So finally to the words of the invite inside a thin gold border in the centre. In italicised blue manuscript alternating with non-italicised capitals, the invitation is headed The Coronation of Their Majesties, King Charles III and Queen Camilla. By command of the King, the Earl Marshal is directed to invite and this is where your name would appear, to be present at the Abbey Church of Westminster on the 6th day of May, 2023. The invitation is signed Norfolk, who is the Earl Marshal, who traditionally has the responsibility of organising the coronation, with the Norfolk crest in faint print beneath the signature. And if by any chance you don't receive an invitation through the official channels, copies of the invite can be downloaded with a blank space left for your name in the centre, so that you can pop the invitation on your mantelpiece. You can email blindguyschat at gmail.com or tweet us at blindguyschat if you've any comments or questions. Today I'm looking at the royal carriages. On May the 6th, the gates of Buckingham Palace will open and the soon-to-be-crowned King and Queen will proceed along the Mall towards Admiralty Arch, Whitehall and Parliament Square on their way to Westminster Abbey. But, in a complete break from tradition, Their Majesties will not be travelling to the Abbey in the Gold State Coach, only on the way back. Let me tell you how that's come about, with a bit of history thrown in. The Gold State Coach, which was commissioned by George III, designed by William Chambers, the architect of Somerset House, 
and built by coachmaker Samuel Butler in 1760, has been used at every coronation since William IV's in 1831, and for many, many state openings of Parliament. It is indeed a fairy tale coach, its ornate golden roof with its elaborate carvings glinting in the sunlight as it makes its stately way along a ceremonial route is a thing to behold. Although it looks it, it isn't made of solid gold. If it were, you would need a hundred horses to pull it along, with a few elephants to help. The coach is actually made of gilt wood, which is a thin layer of gold leaf over wood. The coach itself is seven metres long, 3.6 metres tall and weighs four tonnes. It needs eight horses, Windsor Greys traditionally, wearing a red Moroccan leather harness, to draw it. Because of its age and how heavy it is, and its lack of proper suspension, the Gold State Coach is only ever used at a walking pace. The interior is lined and upholstered in padded red velvet and satin, with magnificent painted panels of Roman gods and goddesses by Giovanni Cipriani, and richly gilded carved sculptures by the carver Joseph Wilton, on the doors. The panels are deliberately placed at eye level, so that they can be seen by the public as the coach passes. On the roof of the carriage, three cherubs representing England, Ireland and Scotland carry the imperial crown and hold the sword, scepter and the badge representing knighthood. On the outside, on the four corners of the carriage, a carved lion's head is attached by a rope to the Moroccan leather straps supporting the body of the coach. And these in turn are held by four muscle-bound tritons, mythical sea gods with a man's head and a fish tail. They represent Britain's imperial power. The two bare-chested tritons at the front are blowing trumpet-like conch shells to herald the arrival of the monarch of the ocean. Gilded dolphins hold in place the bar by which the coach is drawn, and the driver's footboard is in the shape of a scallop shell. The two tritons at the back carry imperial symbols, including the trident, representing Britain's maritime traditions and status as a dominant sea power. The coach is managed by four postilions, nine walking grooms, one of whom walks behind the coach, six footmen and four yeomen of the guard, carrying their long partisan spears. Eight grooms walk beside the horses. The more ornately dressed footmen in resplendent red and gold walk beside the body of the coach. The postilions are there to handle the horses when they get unruly, and they carry crooked walking sticks to hold up the traces or straps that may become slack when the coach is taking a corner. The royal coachmen are traditionally clean-shaven. Well, now to the crunch. Not only is the gold state coach heavy without much padding and leather strap suspension, it can get very cold in inclement weather, which is why kings and queens ever since 1831 have complained about the discomfort they experienced when being transported in the coach. King William IV, the sailor king, declared it was like being on board a ship tossing in a rough sea, and he would know. Queen Victoria was quite uncompromising in her distaste for its distressing oscillation, and after her husband's death never used the state coach again. King George VI said that his journey from the palace to Westminster Abbey for his coronation was one of the most uncomfortable rides I've ever had in my life. He had the coach overhauled a bit after the Second World War to rubberize the iron-bound wheels. However, 
the young Queen Elizabeth II was determined to be visible to as many of her subjects as she could, so she was driven to and from Buckingham Palace in the Gold State coach, 1.6 miles one way, 5 miles back. Despite there being a hot water bottle strapped to the underside of her seat, it was a very wet, cold June day, and she famously said the ride was horrid and quite uncomfortable. So, we fast forward to 2023, when it was announced that King Charles and Queen Camilla would start their journey in the rather more comfortable Diamond Jubilee State Coach. Backache must be avoided where possible. The Diamond Jubilee State Coach was created in 2012 for the late Queen's 60th Jubilee by Australian coach builder W.J. Frecklington, initially funding its construction as a private individual. First used in 2014, the horse-drawn carriage, drawn by six horses, has an aluminium exterior that sets it apart from its mostly wooden predecessors. It comes with air conditioning, electric windows and contemporary suspension. Despite the mod cons, though, the coach still looks very classically royal. It weighs 2.75 tonnes and is 18 foot long, that's 5.5 metres, and 11 foot high, 3.4 metres. The exterior is an elegant dark brown polished wood with gold detailing and a royal crest on both doors and on the front of the back of the coach. The roof is gilded and very ornate with four crowned golden lions facing away from the imperial crown in the centre. The interior of the coach is lined with yellow silk and the seating is elegant cream. Frecklington used rich woods and gleaming metal sourced from more than a hundred pieces of British history to decorate the exterior and interior of the coach, including fragments of Henry VIII warship, the Mary Rose, pieces of wood from Westminster Abbey, St Paul's Cathedral, Kensington Palace, the Tower of London, Edinburgh Castle, Wells Cathedral, Windsor Castle. The gilded crown on the roof of the coach was carved from oak that was found on Nilsson's flagship, the HMS Victory. The interior panels contain materials from Carnarvon Castle, Canterbury Cathedral, the Antarctic bases of Captain Scott and Shackleton, even a remnant of Florence Nightingale's dress, as well as Sir Edmund Hillary's Everest ladders. There's even something from Big Ben, the Battle of Britain's Spitfire, Hurricane and Lancaster Plains, and a musket ball from the Battle of Waterloo and even a supposed fragment from Sir Isaac Newton's apple tree. The seat handrails come from the Royal Yacht Britannia, and the Government of Scotland donated a piece of the Stone of Schoon, which is embedded in a panel beneath the seats. Inside there are plaques commemorating some of the great individuals and institutions that have contributed to the fabric of British life. Douglas Bader, Baden-Powell, Charles Dickens, William Shakespeare, Winston Churchill, to name but a few. The two door handles, made by a New Zealand jeweller, are individually decorated with 24 diamonds and 130 sapphires. The brass and cut glass carriage lamps at the four corners of the carriage were handmade by Edinburgh Crystal. So the Diamond Jubilee State Coach, drawn by six Windsor Grey horses on the big day, will make the 1.3-mile journey from the palace to the abbey for the 11 o'clock ceremony. And we shall see for the first time if King Charles will be sitting on the right-hand side of the carriage, with the Queen consort on the left, which is how it was for 70 years 
with the Queen and Prince Philip. She was always on the right. After the coronation, their majesties will return to the palace, taking the same route, but much more slowly and more visibly, in the gold state coach, hopefully with a bit of hidden added padding. The subject for now is regalia. Where there is royalty, there is regalia and pageantry. And the British monarchy is steeped in ancient traditions. To explain a little of what will happen on May the 6th, marking the first double coronation since Queen Elizabeth's parents, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, in 1937, I'm looking back 70 years to the late Queen's coronation, because in all but some details, stripped down as they may be, the ceremony will be the same, enshrined as it is in the Liber Regalis, the Royal Book, an English medieval illuminated manuscript which was most likely compiled in 1382, setting out the procedure for the coronation of England's then new Queen, Anne of Bohemia. This 34-page document serves as a guide to whoever is responsible for organising the coronation, which falls always to the Earl Marshal, the Duke of Norfolk. I'll talk about the regalia now, but nearer the time when the Order of Service is published, I will make that available. A coronation service is made up of six different sections. The monarch is presented to the people, the recognition, makes promises to their subjects and God, the oath. The monarch is blessed with holy oil, the anointing, and receives the royal regalia, including a sword and an orb, that is the investing, before finally being crowned. The crown jewels, which are a part of the coronation regalia, are sacred and secular objects, which symbolise the service and responsibilities of the monarch, and have played a central role in coronation services for hundreds of years. These crown jewels are held in trust by the monarch on behalf of the nation, and when not on display, they are kept in the Tower of London. We've already examined in detail the two crowns that play their vital part in the coronation, the St Edward the Confessor's crown and the Imperial State crown. I just want to add one tiny detail I missed, and that is that there are four large pearls resting on the rich purple cap on the Imperial State crown, and these pearls are known as the Queen Elizabeth's earrings. Before becoming part of the Imperial State crown, these four pearls had belonged to many famous historical figures beforehand. Believed to have come from Catherine de' Medici, received as a wedding present, when she married Henri II of France, Henry II. She gave the pearls to her daughter-in-law, Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary was later imprisoned at the orders of her cousin, Queen Elizabeth I of England, in 1569, and they became known as Queen Elizabeth's earrings when they were sold to the monarch. So now, to the regalia that will feature in the ceremony. There are two maces, or staffs of office, both made of oak, covered in silver, and which date back to the reign of Charles II. They are the ceremonial emblems of authority, which are carried before the sovereign, as is the sword of state, symbolising royal authority. A steel blade with a silver gilt hilt, enclosed in a wooden scabbard covered in velvet. During the reign of King Charles II, two such swords were made, but only one has survived. The remaining one has been used at several coronations, and is always carried with the point upwards. The scabbard bears the coat of arms of King William III. Then there is the golden St Edward's staff, with its steel spike from an earlier staff, which was often referred to as the long scepter, and carried as a relic of the royal saint Edward the Confessor. 
Three further swords would be used during the coronation procession, the Sword of Temporal Justice, signifying the monarch's role as head of the armed forces, the Sword of Spiritual Justice, signifying the monarch as defender of the faith, and the Sword of Mercy, or Katana, which has a blunted tip, symbolising the sovereign's mercy. These swords were first used at the coronation of King Charles I in 1626 and are carried without their scabbards, with their points up. The most important and most holy part of the ceremony is the anointing. This is where the Archbishop of Canterbury pours holy oil from the ampulla, vessel, into the coronation spoon, a silver gilt spoon that dates back to 1349. It serves to emphasise the spiritual status of the sovereign who, until the 17th century, was considered to have been appointed directly by God. The anointing oil is made up of sesame oil, rose, jasmine, nerily, a sweet, honeyed essential oil from the blossom of the bitter orange tree, benzoin, which is an organic compound deriving from the oil of bitter almond, amber, and orange blossom. Usually a batch was made to last a few coronations, but in May 1941, a bomb hit the deanery at the Abbey, destroying the file, so a new batch was made. The chrism oil, which is what it's called, with which the king and the queen consort will be anointed, would have been consecrated in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem in March, and will be contained in the ampulla, made of gold and cast in the form of an eagle with outspread wings. The oil is poured through an aperture in the eagle's beak. The ampulla was supplied for the coronation of King Charles II in 1661 by the crown jeweller of the time, Robert Viner, and is based on an earlier smaller vessel, which in turn was based on a 14th century legend in which the Virgin Mary appeared to Sir Thomas a Becket and presented him with a golden eagle and a vial of oil for anointing future kings of England. The silver gilt coronation spoon is the oldest object in use at coronations having first been recorded in 1349 among the regalia in Westminster Abbey. In 1649, the spoon was sold to the yeoman of King Charles I's wardrobe during those 11 years when England had no king, but it was returned for King Charles II's coronation in 1661, when small seed pearls were added to the decoration of the handle. The anointing of their majesties, the most sacred moment of the coronation, will not be televised in keeping with the precedents set by Her Majesty's coronation in 1953. The Liber Regalis states that the Archbishop of Canterbury will make the sign of the cross with the holy oil on the royal foreheads, hands and chests to show that the monarchs have been chosen by God. After the anointing, the Majesties are invested with a number of ornaments symbolising the nature of kingship. The Lord Great Chamberlain presents the Golden Spurs, the symbol of chivalry. The spurs were made in 1661 for King Charles II, but the use of spurs dates back to King Richard I the Lionheart. The gold, leather and red velvet spurs symbolise knighthood. Next, the Archbishop of Canterbury presents the jewelled Sword of Offering. It has a steel blade mounted in gold and set with jewels, which form a rose, a thistle and a shamrock, oak leaves, acorns and lion's heads. The sword is contained in a gold-covered leather scabbard. Traditionally, the monarch is offered the two armils. Bracelets about two and a half inches wide, that's six centimetres wide, made from gold, chanlevé, and engraved enamel, with the national emblems of the rose, the thistle, fleur-de-lis, and harp, 
and embellished with dark blue florets and red pellets between light blue enamel herringbone borders. They're lined in deep red velvet and are thought to relate to ancient symbols of knighthood and military leadership. They've been referred to during previous coronations as the Bracelets of Sincerity and Wisdom and were used up until King George VI's coronation in 1937. Finally, His Majesty, clothed in ceremonial robes, the cloth of gold, the robe royal, and wearing the sovereign's ring, is handed the orb and scepter. The sovereign's ring, known as the Wedding Ring of England, is composed of a sapphire with a ruby cross set in diamonds. During the ceremony, the ring is placed on the fourth finger of the sovereign by the archbishop as a symbol of kingly dignity. Sovereigns from King Edward VII onwards have used it at their coronations, except for Queen Victoria, whose fingers were so small that the ring couldn't be reduced far enough in size, and she had to have her own made. The orb that weighs four pounds and nine ounces is formed from a hollow gold sphere, actually two separate hollow hemispheres joined together at the central jewelled band, with clusters of emeralds, rubies and sapphires set into an enamel mount surrounded by small rose-cut diamonds. All this between single rows of tiny pearls. Overall, it contains 600 precious stones. At the top of the orb, there is an octagonal, step-cut amethyst the size of a raspberry, surmounted by a medieval cross set with diamonds, a table-cut sapphire in the centre on one side and an emerald on the other, and with pearls at the angles and at the end of each arm of the cross, mounted with clusters of emeralds, rubies and sapphires. The orb is a representation of the sovereign's power, symbolising the Christian world, with the cross mounted on a globe and the bands of jewels dividing it into three sections represent the three continents known in medieval times. In 1671, Colonel Thomas Blood attempted to steal the sovereign's orb along with the other crown jewels. The orb was recovered but was damaged during Blood's escape, but was subsequently repaired. During the coronation, the Archbishop of Canterbury places the orb in the monarch's right hand and then the orb is placed on the altar before the monarch is crowned. The scepter is a symbol of the monarch's power, representing the sovereign's authority over worldly affairs. It consists of a long gold rod in three sections with enameled collars at the intersections, adorned with diamonds, emeralds, rubies, sapphires and amethysts. Near the top of the scepter, also known as the sovereign's scepter with cross, there is an enameled heart-shaped structure which holds a huge drop-shaped diamond, Kalinan I, or the Star of Africa weighing 530.2 carats. It was added to the scepter in 1910. The diamond was officially presented by South Africa to King Edward VII and remains the largest colourless cut diamond in the world. The cross at the top of the scepter has an emerald in its centre. Another royal scepter used in coronation ceremonies is the scepter with the dove, topped with a model of the bird, symbolising peace and unity. You can email blindguyschat at gmail.com or tweet us at blindguyschat if you have any comments or questions. Today, I'm looking at the royal image. The late Queen was perhaps the most widely known and recognised face of anyone in the world and for such a long time. Her coronation in 1953 was witnessed in the Abbey by more than 8,000 guests. The first to be televised, it was watched by 27 million people in the UK out of a population of 36 million. We're up to 70 now. But going back in history, 
Most people never caught a glimpse of their monarch, well, not until the 9th century, if they were in a position to handle money. The history of coins and kings goes back to that time. The very first coins were struck in the British Isles 2,000 years ago, copying Greek coin design. After the Romans invaded in AD 43, the Roman system was introduced. And then when they left in the 5th century, the silver penny eventually emerged as the dominant coin circulating in England. Fast forward to 800 AD, the year that Charlemagne was crowned emperor, and coins already bore the names of the kings for whom they were struck. And a natural development was the representation of their own images on their coins. Coinage played a huge part in spreading the fame of kings. The more often the coins were passed through people's hands and the further afield they went, the more famous the monarch. Athelstan, who died in 939, is the first English king to be shown on his coins wearing a crown or a circlet. But for most people, the king's image on coins was the only likeness of the monarch which they were ever likely to see in their lifetimes, if they could get hold of a coin. After over a thousand years, the monarch continues to be depicted on the obverse of modern UK coinage. During her reign, there were five representations of Her Majesty on circulating coins. The original was adopted at the beginning of her reign in 1952, then in 64, 85, 98, and the fifth and last portrait was introduced in 2015. It shows the elderly queen wearing the George IV diamond diadem that she wore on her way to the abbey to become queen, a diadem which incorporated the rose, the shamrock and the thistle in its design. From the time of Charles II onwards, a tradition developed of monarchs being represented on the coins facing in the opposite direction to their immediate predecessor. The exception to this was in the brief reign of Edward VIII. He preferred his left profile. So even though he should have been facing to the right, designs for proposed coins for his reign show Edward VIII facing left. But of course, he was only king for a matter of months before he abdicated for love, and he was never crowned. The right-left tradition was restored in the reign of his brother, George VI, who found himself unexpectedly acceding to the throne, with his portrait facing left, as if Edward VIII had faced right. Could this be more confusing? Nevertheless, the late Queen reassuringly faced right for all of her long reign, though left on postage stamps. So now, Charles III is facing left on coins and on the left and facing left on the new QR code stamps issued by the Royal Mail. He's bareheaded with a few visible waves in his hair and with his characteristic parting just slightly left of centre. Images of the monarch on banknotes are a much more recent invention. But only since 1960 has the British sovereign featured on every English banknote, giving the Queen another unique distinction among many other previous monarchs. The design of King Charles III's banknotes was unveiled in December. The King's portrait will appear on all four of our polymer banknotes, £5, £10, £20 and £50. The rest of the design on the banknotes will remain the same. The King's image will appear on the front of the banknotes on the right, as well as in the see-through security window on the left. 
However, these banknotes are not yet in circulation. There is also an official photograph of King Charles and the Queen Consort, because that is her title until she's crowned. It was taken in the Blue Room at Buckingham Palace just recently, and they're both wearing blue against a soft focus background. The 74-year-old king, whose hair is now silvery white, is standing on the left of the photograph, looking outwards with a relaxed half-smile. He's wearing a blue pinstripe suit over a white shirt and blue tie with a thin yellow geometrical pattern. His right hand is characteristically half submerged in the right-hand pocket of his jacket, his thumb fully visible. The queen consort, who is an inch or two shorter than her husband, has soft silver blonde wavy hair grazing her neck. She's smiling warmly, her dark eyes shining, and she's wearing pearl earrings and a three-string pearl necklace fastened at the front with a blue clasp. Her dress is a vivid blue, or royal blue, similar in intensity to the blue of the boar on her coat of arms. Clothing psychologists suggest this is to show nobility, status and reassurance. Her below-the-knee-length dress is collarless. It has three-quarter-length sleeves and is fastened at the front. The royal feet are not visible in the photograph. Well, that is an official one, and there will be thousands of others. But I've already seen two commemorative tins of shortbread, a Scottish biscuit speciality for those who don't know that, with the king's image on the front, one in a highland two-piece grey jacket and waistcoat worn with his kilt, and the other in his red royal colonel's tunic, complete with the blue sash of the Order of the Garter, descending from his left shoulder across to his waist, and a row of medals on the left side of his chest. There are gilded cords known as aiguillette, with gold metal-tagged points draped across his right shoulder. Producers of products with the royal warrant will no doubt be unveiling their coronation specials very soon. A royal warrant of appointment is granted as a mark of recognition to people or companies who've regularly supplied goods or services to Her Majesty the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh, and put the Prince of Wales as he was then, but now to King Charles III. We don't know yet, and probably won't know until the day, which of his many uniforms the King will wear for the coronation. Unlike his mother, though, who wore the George IV diadem, he will not be wearing a crown until he's crowned king. This is Veronica Hicks with an insight into what's going to be on the menu. In 1953, when post-war food rationing was still very much in evidence, the Cordon Bleu School of Culinary Skills, the oldest cookery school in the country and a benchmark for excellence in the industry, was asked to prepare a dish for the many hundreds of foreign dignitaries attending the Queen's coronation. Sir David Eccles, the then Minister of Works, asked the head of the school, Rosemary Hume, and her students to conjure up the luncheon for Her Majesty's guests, who were mainly representatives of other countries. And 350 people sat down in the Great Hall of Westminster for the largest sit-down event ever to have taken place there. The original dish that was served can be found on the handwritten menu, which was written in French, that the meal began with tomato and tarragon soup, followed by river trout. But the pièce de résistance was poulet reine Elisabeth, which subsequently became known as coronation chicken. It's a dish of cold chicken boned and coated 
in curry cream sauce. With one end of each dish, a well-seasoned dressed salad of rice, green peas, and pimentos. Serving coronation chicken curry to such a large number of people with so many different preferences could have been seen as a challenge. However, the carefully seasoned chicken and delicate nut-like flavors with little pieces of sultanas running through the sauce marked it as a huge success. The ingredients used were remarkable for their time, with many of them only just becoming available, while the majority of the country was still under the restrictions of post-war rationing. The original recipe consisted of young roasting chickens, water, a little wine to cover, carrot, a bouquet garni, salt, peppercorns, and the cream of curry sauce. A slightly more developed version of the chicken recipe is still a nation's favourite, and nostalgically, the Cordon Bleu School in London are celebrating the coronation of King Charles III with a gourmet coronation chicken bun and a red, white and blue fruit tart, complete with a delicate golden lace crown available at their restaurant premises. However, things have moved on. The past is the past, so what should be the dish that is synonymous with this coronation? Something simple, delicious, accessible to all, and very healthy. A dish of the day throughout the land. Their Majesties have chosen a traditional quiche as the celebratory dish for the coronation on Saturday the 6th of May 2023. Dame Prue Leith, DBE, herself a former pupil of the Cordon Bleu School and international advocate for good healthy eating and famed Great British Bake Off judge who wears hundreds of coloured spectacles, not all at once, always different colours though, which are now her trademark look, was asked to give her professional view at a big lunch at Westminster Abbey, attended by faith leaders from across the country. The verdict of the dame who wore a bright pink jacket and matching spectacles was that it was absolutely delicious. Hosted by the Dean of Westminster, the outdoor event was organised to inspire people to organise their own celebratory events, showing how food can bring people of all faiths and backgrounds together to share friendship, food and fun. Her Majesty the Queen Consort has been patron of the initiative since 2013 and has attended big lunches all across the UK and the world. The quiche, comprising spinach, broad beans and tarragon, has been described as a deep quiche with a crisp, light pastry case and delicate flavours. And it is recommended to be eaten with a green salad and boiled new potatoes. All this to promote healthy eating. No mayonnaise to be used in this recipe. And it brings to an end the notion that real men don't eat quiche. You can email blindguyschat at gmail.com or tweet us at blindguyschat if you've any comments or questions. For the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about four definite images that will define this coronation. The first is the official coronation emblem that we will be seeing more and more of over the next few days as shop windows and private houses unveil their own coronation window displays. Celebrated designer Sir Johnny Ive, KBE, formerly a designer at Apple, has created a circular coronation emblem in red, white and blue. Think of it as a plate, a white plate, 
with words in blue capital letters around the rim. Across the top, King Charles III, on the lower half going from left to right, the word coronation, followed by the 6th of May 2023, and each of these elements is separated by a dot. In the centre of the plate, a cheerful circular floral design reflecting the King's love of the natural world, incorporating the flora of the four nations of the United Kingdom, the Rose of England, the Thistle of Scotland, the Daffodil of Wales and the Shamrock of Northern Ireland. The flowers are drawn in a similarly loose and unfussy style, like the flowers on the coronation invitation. They're mostly red, but in their centre where they come together to form the shape of St Edward the Confessor's crown, they're blue. Speaking about the emblem, the designer said the design was inspired by King Charles's love of the planet, nature and his deep concern for the natural world. The emblem speaks to the happy optimism of spring and celebrates the beginning of this new Carolean era for the United Kingdom. The gentle modesty of these natural forms combine to define an emblem that acknowledges both the joyful and the traditional. It is available in English and Welsh and will be used throughout the celebrations, at street parties, on flags, even in the service itself. And it will feature heavily on all the official merchandise commemorating the historic event like on mugs, plates, balloons, aprons, stickers, tea towels, tablecloths, and even hats. Another first for this coronation, the first in the age of social media, is the coronation emoji, which was unveiled last month. The colourful cartoon motif depicts the 17th-century jewelled solid gold crown of St Edward, with the purple velvet cap, and the plan is that this emoji pops up whenever the coronation is discussed on social media which leads me directly to take a look at the real thing, actually at the two crowns of significance that are the centrepieces of the coronation ceremony. The first being the crown of St Edward the Confessor, who was the last Anglo-Saxon King of England, crowned in 1042. The original crown and the 11th century Westminster Abbey were destroyed long ago, but then replaced. Some version of that medieval crown has been the centrepiece of every coronation since then, we know when Oliver Cromwell declared England a republic in 1649, effectively abolishing the monarchy and the king in a most head-rolling way, the crown was melted down for its metal. Current crown of that name, crowned the new king on the 6th of May, dates back to 1661, made especially for King Charles II on his restoration to the throne. It's thought that fragments and shards of the melted-down crown are incorporated in this one. The crown is made up of a solid gold frame, set with rubies, amethysts, sapphires, garnet, topaz and terminines. In the centre, the crown has a rich purple velvet cap, with an ermine band below it, white fur with small black markings, which symbolises purity. Rising up from the gold frame, the crown has four crosses pâté. That is the term for crosses that date back to medieval times that are quite squat in shape, the four arms identical in size and narrowing at the centre. Then there are four golden fleur-de-lis, the three-petalled lily emblem, embellished with precious stones, and the crown is protected by two golden arches surmounted by a gem-encrusted cross pâté. It weighs 2.23 kilos, which is about 5 pounds, but fortunately, it's only worn for a few moments during the ceremony when the Archbishop of Canterbury places it briefly on the new monarch's head. Thereafter, King Charles III exchanges that crown for the more familiar and spectacular 
imperial state crown, which the world last saw placed on the late queen's coffin at her state funeral. The imperial state crown was made for the unexpected coronation of King George VI, the late queen's father, in 1937, but is closely based on a crown designed for Queen Victoria a hundred years earlier. The crown is 12.4 inches tall, that's 31.5 centimetres, and it weighs 1.06 kilos, or 2.3 pounds. That is half the weight of the older crown. The open-work gold frame is mounted with three very large stones and set with 2,868 diamonds in silver mounts and coloured stones in gold mounts, including 17 blue sapphires, 11 emeralds and 269 pearls. The effect is absolutely dazzling. At the front of the crown band is the large cushion-shaped brilliant Kalinan II. At 317.4 carats, it's the second largest stone cut from the Kalinan diamond, which is also known as the second star of Africa. The Kalinan diamond was found in 1905, 20 miles from Pretoria, and it weighed 3,025 pounds. It was offered to Edward VII in 1907 as a gift following the Boer War. At the back of the headband is a large oval sapphire, 104 carats, known as the Stuart Sapphire. It is traditionally thought to have been smuggled by James II when he fled England in December 1688 and thereafter had a very dramatic history before it eventually ended up where it is today. The sapphire and the diamond, front and back, are linked by an open-work frieze containing eight emeralds and eight sapphires between two rows of tiny pearls. Above the band are four half-arches, each sprung from a cross pâté. The arches are cast as oak leaves set with diamonds, each having pearl acorns in diamond cups projecting from the sides. The arches can be raised or lowered according to the wishes of the monarch, and George VI opted for high arches, whereas his daughter lowered them by several inches. The arches on the crown are there to demonstrate that England was not subject to any other earthly power. The front cross that stands in front of the purple cap is mounted with a large irregular red spinel known as the Black Prince's Ruby, traditionally thought to have been the ruby given to Edward, Prince of Wales, son of Edward III, and known as the Black Prince, by Don Pedro, King of Castile. This stone measures 170 carats and is of eastern origin, and has been drilled in the past to be used as a pendant. It is said that it was worn by Henry V in his helmet at the Battle of Agincourt. Whether this is true or not, we do not know, but it adds glamour to the stone. The remaining three crosses are each mounted with a step-cut emerald, mounted as a lozenge. The crosses alternate with the four fleur-de-lis, each with a mixed-cut ruby in the centre, and the crosses and the fleur-de-lis are mounted with diamonds, linked by swags of diamonds supported on sapphires. The cross that stands at the front of the purple cap is mounted by a large irregular red spinel known as the Black Prince's Ruby. This was thought to have been the ruby given to Edward, Prince of Wales, son of Edward III, and known as the Black Prince. It is eastern in origin and measures 170 carats, and has been drilled in the past for use as a pendant. It had a very checkered and exciting history, but it is said that it was one of the stones worn by Henry V in his helmet at the Battle of Agincourt. Whether that is true or not, it's a romantic story. 
the three remaining crosses are mounted with emeralds, in a lozenge shape. Above the arches in the centre stands a monde, or an orb of fretted silver with shards of diamonds. It has a cross pâté above it, which looks like a very thin square of diamonds. In its centre is an octagonal rose-coloured sapphire, known as the St. Edward's Sapphire. The story behind this sapphire is that Edward the Confessor, the last Anglo-Saxon king, was asked for alms by a beggar. Because he carried no money with him, the king presented the beggar with a ring. The beggar later turned out to be St. John the Evangelist, who assisted two English pilgrims in Syria in gratitude for the king's help and asked them to return the ring to St. Edward. The king was buried with the ring in Westminster Abbey in 1066. In the 12th century, the tomb was opened and the ring was removed and eventually ended up on this crown. The crown has the central purple velvet cap and an ermine band around the head. Her Majesty the Queen famously said that one had to keep one's head very still otherwise one could do one's neck a lot of damage. Such was the weight and the size of the crown. You can email blindguyschat at gmail.com or tweet us at blindguyschat if you've any comments or questions. For anyone who witnessed the funeral of the late Queen, universally regarded as faultless in its execution, even though the planning for it had been going on for years, it is still hard to believe that everything went so smoothly. The answer is, of course, down to brilliant planning and rigorous rehearsals. So over the last few weeks, should you have been idling in the streets of central London late at night or before dawn, you might have heard the clip-clop of hooves, the purr of stirrups on leather, and the clang of swords, as hundreds of service personnel were moving along the processional route on horseback, meticulously going through their paces. More than 6,000 members of the armed forces will take part on the day, which means there are helmets to be polished, bearskins to be brushed, uniforms cleaned, horses groomed. The eight Windsor Greys, pulling the Gold State coach, are being trained to withstand the noise levels of the crowds and the aircraft buzzing across the skies. Staff at their equestrian stables have been greeting the animals on a daily basis with flags, drums and cheering to make sure that nothing will surprise them. Several weeks ago, a replica coronation stage was set up in the ballroom at Buckingham Palace to allow King Charles and the Queen Consort to rehearse for the big day. We know that 70 years ago the wife of the then Earl Marshal, the Duchess of Norfolk, used to stand in for the Queen during TV camera rehearsals. We also know Her Majesty attended several run-throughs and a full dress rehearsal. Ceremonial diagrams were produced in 53 in order to avoid a collision of key players. Arrows illustrated their roots, the Queen represented by a circle with a capital S for Sovereign and the Archbishop of Canterbury by a circle with a capital C. Since the Abbey closed on the 25th of April, in-situ rehearsals have been taking place, following careful instructions set out in a special document. Of course, in the past things didn't always go according to plan. When George IV finally acceded to the throne in 1820, he was the one who was nicknamed Prinny, and was the high-spending Prince of Wales known for his lavish tastes. He didn't worry about how much it was going to cost, but the one thing he didn't want was for his wife to be there. Events were delayed for quite a while till he got his way, and indeed Queen Caroline was barred from entry. George IV's brother, William, couldn't have been more different. He didn't want to be crowned at all, or to spend any money on it. 
so his investiture became known as the Penny Coronation. If TV had existed in George's day, he would have definitely had it televised. In 1953, so that the coverage would reach as many areas of the kingdom as possible, four new high-powered transmitters were installed in the Midlands, Northern England, Scotland and Wales, bringing 81% of the population within range. But anyone who was there may well remember that a test card was shown to people on their small black-and-white TV screens for viewers to be able to adjust contrast and brightness before the start of the live broadcast. In the Abbey, cameramen wearing suits and ties back then squeezed themselves into the narrowest of positions up in the 13th century Triforium, high above the nave. This is a tall central space 52 feet above the ground, with the most astonishing views through the six feet diameter round windows segmented into flower petal-like sections, affording views over Parliament in one direction and the nave in the other. This Triforium is home to the Abbey's greatest treasures, including the Liber Regalis, restored effigies of past kings, carved tombs, paintings and manuscripts, and has recently been made open to the public. The view of the nave is astonishing, and it is why the cameras are placed there, then and now, for the all-encompassing wide shot. The main problem facing the cameramen, then, was the space they had to operate in. The five cameras in the Abbey had to be as inconspicuous as possible, and most were housed in a small wooden box-like hut, where even the shortest cameraman couldn't stand up. And one small fellow was hidden under a raised floorboard with a cloth over his head. It was also the first time a zoom lens, the Watson zoom, was used, but only in a very discreet way. Cameras searching out celebrities in the congregation just wasn't done back then. Seventy years later, in addition to the BBC installing their technical equipment, a new feature, reflecting our times, is the installation of airport-style scanners and checkpoints to screen the 2,000 guests, who may well have been carefully selected, but in 2023 you can't take any chances. Imagine screening 8,000 guests as there were in 1953. One small yet vital aspect of the preparations which was deployed for the Queen's state funeral will happen again for four days before the big day, and it involves a falcon. A hooded falcon is to be taken up to the roof of the abbey by the abbey falconer, did we know that there was such a job, to scare the pigeons away. There should be no pigeons flying around the magnificent vaulted ceiling of the abbey, or worse still, above the altar which prompts me to look down at the floor of the Theatre of the Coronation, as it is called, the place in front of the high altar where the ceremony will take place, on the Cosmati pavement. The Cosmati pavement, measuring 24 feet 10 inches square, 7 meters 58, was laid down in 1268 by the order of Henry III, who had started rebuilding the old abbey. He summoned workmen from Rome with a man called Odoricos at their head. The pavement comprises a type of inlaid stone decoration known as Cosmati work, named after one of its craftsmen, and the technique is called opus sectile, cut work. This differs from earlier medieval mosaic work, which consisted of square stones of equal size. This pavement has hundreds of delicate geometrical patterns built up from pieces of English Purbeck limestone, Italian white marble, pieces of glass of different colours and sizes, purple porphyry, green serpentine, yellow limestone, and opaque-coloured glass, red, turquoise, cobalt blue, and bluish white. These have been cut into triangles, squares, circles, rectangles, and many other shapes. 
there are over 93,000 elements to it. A frequent design is a six-petaled flower in reds, blues and turquoise. Other patterns are abstract or geometric. Looking down on this square from above, I see a border with four rectangles, one in each side of the border. Inside the border, a square with horizontal and vertical lines. Inside that, a smaller transversal square, with the corners pointing upwards, downwards and out to the sides. Every inch of this pavement is a mosaic pattern, and they're all different. The border almost looks like a backgammon board, with five roundels or circles bunched in each corner. Or perhaps the internal workings of a clock, each one different. Or you could be looking down on 20 brass coffee tables, the sort you have in the Middle East. That is the visual effect the pavement has on me. The large square inside the border has a roundel in each corner, and so does the transversal square. All in all, there are 28 highly decorated circles, and a 29th in the middle, made of cream-coloured onyx. The four main roundels are all different. One is circular, one hexagonal, one heptagonal, and another octagonal. The official description of the pavement doesn't go anywhere near to conveying the beauty and extraordinary detail of it. The best way of seeing it would indeed be floating 12 feet above it. According to the only medieval interpretation we have, taken from a brass inscription, the pavement symbolises the world, or the universe, and its end. And the end will come after 19,683 years, which has been calculated by a chronology based on the mythical lifespan of animals. The pavement was cleaned in 2010, but in the last few weeks there's been special occasion cleaning using chisels, grinders and wax to bring the colours up to their maximum. And it is on this pavement that a platform will be erected to house the coronation chair. This is Veronica Hicks with a descriptive insight into the coronation chair and the stone of Schoon. For a long time they were inseparable, but now they only see each other at coronations. Let me explain. Starting with the coronation chair, known historically as St. Edward's Chair, an ancient Gothic seat of majesty made of oak, on which British monarchs since 1399 have been seated on the occasion of their coronation. The chair was commissioned in 1296 by King Edward I to house the coronation stone of Scotland, known as the Stone of Destiny, which he captured from the Scots, who had kept it at Schoon Abbey. Schoon, which is spelt like the baked afternoon tea delicacy, but pronounced Schoon, is a block of red Scottish sandstone, which had been used by Scottish kings for centuries to sit upon when they were crowned. The high-backed wooden armchair was carved from oak at some point between 1297 and 1300 by the carpenter Walter of Durham. At first the king wanted it to be made of bronze, but he changed his mind and decided it should be made of gilded timber. Originally covered in gold and glass mosaics, so it looked like solid gold, rather bright and gaudy. But over the years, most of the gilding has been lost, although there are some traces visible if you look carefully, and traces of a reddish pigment, especially on the planked back. You can still find outlines of foliage, birds and animals. And a lost image of a king, maybe Edward the Confessor or Edward I, with his feet resting on a lion, was also painted on the planked back of the chair, but has faded away. The chair is the oldest dated piece of English furniture made by a known artist. And looking at it today, even after it's been waxed and polished for May the 6th, the expression that comes to mind is shabby chic. Old, venerable and absolutely perfect. 
I would say it's quite hard to sit on for a long while without any cushions, but then they were tougher in medieval times. From the horizontal top of the planked back of the chair, a thin triangular pediment rises up, a typical feature of Gothic architecture, like a thin teepee. The inside rim is gilded. Along the top of the two sloping sides is a finely carved wooden leaf motif. At both ends of the back of the chair, there's a vertical finial, and the arms of this ancient seat were not built for comfort either. They're curved like a ski jump or a lathe on which to sharpen a knife. Below the simple wooden seat, there is a vertical screen made up of three catrefoils or four-leaved architectural shapes. Behind that screen is where the stone of Scone resides, or used to. On the sides of the chair, there are several decorative Gothic panels. Gilded seated lions with snarling jaws were added in the 16th century to form the legs of the chair. They were replaced in 1727 with newer versions. And there's a red brocade curtain canopy that hangs behind the chair. In the 18th century, tourists were allowed to sit on it for a small payment to the abbey staff. So those early tourists and choir boys of the abbey carved their initials and other graffiti into the chair. And the corner posts were damaged by souvenir hunters. Nails have often been driven into the wood to attach fabric for coronations. And in preparation for Queen Victoria's golden jubilee, the chair was covered with a coating of brown paint. Sir Gilbert Scott, the Gothic revival architect, architect of the law courts, described the chair as a magnificent piece of decoration, but sadly mutilated. And that's not all. At 5:40 on the 11th of June 1914, the chair was the object of a bomb attack, thought to have been organised by the suffragettes. A corner of the chair was broken off in the explosion. But over the eight centuries of its existence, the chair has only been removed from Westminster Abbey twice. The first time was for the ceremony in Westminster Hall across the way, when Oliver Cromwell used it as Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England. The second was during the Second World War, when it was moved out of London for its safety. The chair without the stone was loaded onto a truck, and with two detectives accompanying the driver, it was driven to Gloucester Cathedral, where five carpenters arrived to shore up the roof of a vaulted recess in the crypt, and the chair was moved into that and stayed there till the end of the war. The stone of Scone itself has had a few adventures of its own. This plain slab of sandstone, its only decoration a cross carved into it. Weighing 152 kilos, 336 pounds, and measuring 26 inches, 66 centimeters by 16 inches, that's 41 centimeters by 11 inches, 28 centimeters, which is about the size of one's luggage allowance inside an aircraft, was stolen from the Abbey on Christmas Day 1950 by Scottish nationalists, damaging both the chair and the stone. The stone was recovered in time for Queen Elizabeth II's coronation, and one of the thieves went on to have a very successful career in criminal law. But in 1996, Prime Minister John Major decided that the stone would be returned to Scotland to be kept at Edinburgh Castle, on the proviso that it would be returned to England for use at coronations. On the evening of the 13th of November 1996, the stone was removed from the chair. And put in a specially made crate, it was transported by stretcher to stand in the lantern of the abbey overnight, and was removed in silence to the waiting police escort early on the morning of the 14th of November, to make the long journey to Scotland by road. A similar journey, the other way, made by the late Queen 
on her way back to London to lie in state at Westminster Hall. The stone can now be seen in Edinburgh Castle. Legends abound concerning it. Tradition identifies it with a stone upon which Jacob rested his head at Bethel, and Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. Genesis chapter 28 verse 18. The legend then says that Jacob's sons carried it to Egypt, from thence to Spain, and somehow it reached Ireland. There it was placed upon the sacred hill of Tara, and became known as the Stone of Destiny, on which the Irish kings were seated at coronations, until the founder of the Scottish monarchy, and one of the blood royal of Ireland, received it in Scotland, and it was then that it found its permanent home in the monastery of Schoon in Perthshire. Setting aside the earlier myths, it's certain that for centuries it has been an object of veneration to the Scots. Upon this stone their kings were crowned, and it's said that the following words were once engraved on it. If fates go right, where'er this stone is found, the Scots shall monarchs of that realm be crowned. And that prophecy was fulfilled at the accession of James VI of Scotland and I of England in 1603. But now it's on its way back to London, to be reunited with the coronation chair, which will leave its secure location behind glass on a plinth in St George's Chapel in the nave of Westminster Abbey to be carried into the theatre of the coronation and placed on a pedestal facing the high altar. The stone will be slotted under the seat of the chair and chair and stone will bear witness to the coronation of a new king. But what of Queen Camilla? When William III and Mary II became joint monarchs in 1689, they needed two coronation chairs for the ceremony. William III used the original 13th century chair, while a second one was made for Mary. So what will happen this time? To find out more, click on the link. Queen Camilla. Well, wasn't that just amazing? I hope you've enjoyed that every bit as much as Oren and Jan and myself have enjoyed it because we've been sort of sneakily, I think, listening over the last week. Uh, it, it's just amazing. And as I said to you at the very very top of the show, do check out um, the YouTube channel because I suspect there's more where that came from, as they say, on all the best shows. That's just about it. Thank you so much for bearing with us. Uh, the, um, the lads are back with Clodagh in two weeks' time. I'll see you in four weeks' time. Uh, and until then look after yourselves blindguyschat at gmail.com stay safe and stay well thanks for listening folks bye bye